Hey everyone, this is Andy, better known as Love Retro BTW on Twitter X, Threads, IG, and Cafe BTW on TikTok and YouTube. A quick update that the Cafe BTW podcast is taking a very long hiatus, but I still have something really amazing to share with you. We have a fantastic retro gaming community on Twitter X, where we've crossed well over 2,000 passionate members. And if you're a lover of retro gaming, this is the perfect place to share your content, showcase your pickups, or just chat about your favorite old school games. To dive into nostalgia and become a part of the thriving community, click in the show notes on the Cafe BTW link tree, or go right to my Twitter X profile on Love Retro BTW. And now, without further ado, gear up for another sensational episode of the Gamers Week Podcast. This time on Gamers Week Podcast. Do you think somebody's going to hear about this movie? It's like, oh, have you heard about Kate Blanchett's new film? It's called Borderlands. I wonder what it involves. She is a two-time Oscar winner. I must go see this movie. And the next thing you know, they walk out of the theater like, oh, my God, what, a comic book movie or a video game movie? Psh, bring the Rolls Royce around, Jeeves. <laughs> Indubitably. And who was that young man, Jack Black? What a guy. I've never heard of such a person. <laughs> Hopefully they go buy their popcorn and they're handed the Dune popcorn bucket. And just kind of round out the experience. <laughs> the Dune popcorn bucket. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. You're going to a different state to go to Ikea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was like, what do you guys, because they go every year and normally I don't go. I was like, what are you even going for? What do they do? And she's like, well, we want some Tupperware things, like some container things. I was like, that's a long freaking way to go for (laughs) containers. I mean, I enjoy my yearly trip to eat nasty meatballs and get lost as oh, much as the next so person. Gross. <laughs> nasty meatballs and get lost. Yeah, I guess I live here now. I've never actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never actually had them, and I don't think I'm missing anything. To be perfectly honest, no, they have the texture of snot. It's oh so strange, they, yeah. gnarly. With the so brown funky. gravy, that's delicious. That's funky. Oh, oh, oh. no, <laughs> devil man. Six, 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 the mark of the beast. No, no, what that sounded like. You know, and we're the ones moving and we still aren't going to Ikea. I mean, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like I did do like a quick cruise through the website to be like a desk. Could we get a desk? Because we're looking at desks of different sizes and shapes. The answer is no, certainly not. We will not be getting a desk there. Or bar stools or any of the other things we need. The end. Five thousand dollars for Legos. Right. (laughs) Exactly like that. Yep. All right. Welcome to Gamers Week podcast. Like the name says, we analyze the best, worst, and weirdest headlines of the past week in the video game industry. This is episode one hundred and eleven, and today is Wednesday, February twenty first, twenty twenty four. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. My name is Blue Williams, and I'll be your host for this evening. But of course, I am not alone. I have many fine co-hosts with me this evening. 
My first co-host has recently started a support group for people who only have two complete inbox Sega CD consoles in their collection. <laughs> Please, everyone, say hello to the one and only Donnie G. We meet every Monday. And there's coffee, there's donuts, uh, there's tissues for those who, who I, I mean, we're always looking to add more members, but really you can only have two, just two Sega CDs. Uh, well, I mean, I have at least six, so. Uh, yeah, you're in the support group that actually meets on Friday evening, so <laughs> you can't come to this one. Okay. And my second co-host, as you know, has been on tour with his idol, Taylor Swift. However, he was recently kidnapped by a band of rabid Swifties while waiting in line to get Taylor her usual grande caramel nonfat latte and is being held hostage. So Ryan Payne is not here, but we will keep you updated on that saga. Shake it off, Ryan. <laughs> Missy Ryan. <laughs> I understood that reference. Filling in for Ryan, we are so happy to have Redox PDX and Ducks in Disguise back on the show. Redox was previously a guest host on episode 14, and Ducks joined us for episode 24. However, now they are the dynamic duo that makes up Pixel Pond, the cinematography production team specializing in retro events and small businesses. Redox and Ducks, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Woohoo! Well, thanks for having us on the show, and thanks for that awesome intro. Yeah, thank you so much. I was expecting, and back from their world two of the Himalayas, Antarctica, and the North Pole. It's <laughs> Pixel Pond and some other made up nonsense, but that was actually really nice. And so <laughs> so thank you so much. Really nice. Thank you. Yeah. I exhausted my creative resources coming up with Ryan's kidnapping story. So you I was going to say, I hope Ryan gets home safe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What are you talking about? We don't lie on the show. I, haven't you seen his bill on me? No. <laughs> So, for those who may not have caught your earlier episodes on the show, because it was nearly two years ago for both of you, tell us a bit about yourselves and about what's going on. Sure. Um, so, I'm Ducks in Disguise out there on social media, Twitch, and YouTube. Uh, right now, the main focus is on Pixel Pond. We are doing a lot of work out there in the retro event community and local businesses. One of the things that's coming up really quick in two weeks is SideQuest Expo. We're really excited for that. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, be sure to drop by SideQuest Expo on March 9th and 10th. We'll be there. There's going to be a lot of gaming tournaments and vendors and things like that. It's going to be a really awesome awesome event. Absolutely. I would go so far to say, doesn't matter if you're in the Portland, Oregon area. This show has grown from a boutique size, you know, swap meet to a full fledged retro gaming expo show. It's the show I always find the best deal of the year at show wise. And I'm really looking forward to attending. It's twice as big as it's been in past years and all day tournaments going on on Saturday and Sunday that are free with the price of admission to the show. That's pretty wow. awesome. And they've got some good prizes and stuff too, that um, mm -hmm. if you check out our pixel pond discord, we have a link to the tournament schedule. Um, you can pre sign up all that kind of jazz. It's going to be really fun. And plus I'm just really looking forward to seeing, my friends that I only get to see once or twice a year at these events. I think it's going to be really good. Well, I'm glad you elaborated on that because I was going to ask you how big uh, SideQuest Expo was, and I, I think you nailed it on the head. Oh, awesome. Yeah. We will have all of Pixel Pond's links in the show notes. So when you're done listening here, be sure to head on over and check them out. But for now, let's get this show started with our reviews, reactions, and requests. First up is from at Amy the Outcast. Immortals of Avium isn't awful. It's not great, but it's not awful. I had some fun with it. Maybe if I'd paid more than a fiver for it, I might judge it more harshly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair. If you spent less than $5 for a game, no judgment whatsoever. Yeah, you, you can't be mad at it. it. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter. 
At Clayman71 said, my grandma caught me and my cousin playing sextress on my dad's Windows 3.1 computer. That was an awkward Thanksgiving for my old man trying to explain to the family how that got on there. You know, from what we know about our friend Clayman71, this story, this origin story of a family Thanksgiving meal just really brings so much more context to it. Yeah. Like <laughs> Love you, Clay. <laughs> and at Ram Boski says, congrats on your two-year anniversary of the Uncut episodes. Always looking forward to the next one to make the drive to and from work a lot more enjoyable. Loving the new bi-weekly format of streaming and the Uncuts. So thank you to the Triforce, that is Blue, Donnie, and RGB for the great content you put out for the masses on a weekly basis. Thank you, Ramboski. That was really yeah. sweet. Well really said. warmed my heart. And now, it's time for the... What'd you find out at the weigh station? My cruiser weighs 16,000 kilograms. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. I just got off the phone with Tom Mikado from the budget committee. This thing with Fava really screwed our pooch. What? <laughs> they can't lump us in with that Martian. We're all in the same boat, fellas. But when we talk about Xbox going third party, it's cheeky and fun. <laughs> yeah, when he talks about Xbox going third party, it's just cruel and tragic. Turns out Xbox going third party wasn't even true at all, really. Evil Xbox. I swear to God, I'm pissed with the next guy that says Xbox is going third party. <clears throat> hey, Farva. What was that rumor you were telling us about? Something about Microsoft and its games going on to other consoles? You mean Xbox going third party? Put those away. <laughs> Have your fun, boys. Have your fun. Because I'm done with this nonsense. I'm going to do something productive, like look at the responses to the very important poll. <laughs> that was nice. Uh, that was classic. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't done a Super Troopers one yet. That seems like I an enormous know. oversight. We had so many ideas. Like, we got we got a couple out, but, like, we wanted to do one from Tommy Boy where, like, you know, the kids are, you know, hey, nerd, did you know that Super Mario 2 was really Doki Doki Panic? You know? <laughs> Yeah, that was a great one. And plus, I got to say pistol whip, and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. That, that phrase is not used enough in everyday conversation. Honestly, it's not. Yeah. Well done. Every Monday on Twitter, we post our VIP, very important poll. If you'd like to participate, follow us on Twitter at GamersWeekPC. Question, with the official opposite day on Thursday this week, what game has the best perspective changing levels? Paper Mario 3D to 2D. Got 19.4% of the vote. Portal got 31.3%. Symphony of the Night Reverse Castle got 31.3%. And Other took home 17.9%. So let's look at some of the comments from the poll. At Tesseract Unfold, not sure if this is the kind of thing you mean, but Echo Chrome Viewfinder Super Liminal. All three games are so good at making you question reality. Oyabun Gaijin, the MC Esser-esque level in Dante's Inferno is a trip and a half. At Alexa8532, Toad Treasure Tracker. I think they mean Captain Toad Treasure Tracker. <laughs> actually. 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 Well, actually. Well, actually. <laughs> well, actually. 
So funny to play with my wife, but had to have 200% patience due to the orientation's lack with this type of games, as happens to her in real life. Ouch. (laughs) At Thunderdome Game 1. Had to think. Philosoma on the PS1 is a shmup. The camera switches several times during levels from vertical top-down perspective to a rail shooter perspective, which is often reversed, to a horizontal scrolling perspective and an isometric scrolling perspective. At the LP Princess, driver, San Francisco. Ever wanted to see what a second-person viewpoint is like? I mean, sure. Yes. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Actually, sure I can picture it. I will have not? to look up that game. Yeah, I've, I've never played Driver San okay. Francisco. Going to have to check that out. Yeah. So what did you guys vote? I'm going to start first. Okay. How about that? As I got to read the VIP today, I also picked Portal. And I'm saying also because I have a very strong guess <laughs> as to what Ducks picks this week. <laughs> so Portal was a game I played for the very first time in early 2023. I'd never played an FPS game on the PC. And my last FPS game I'd ever played was GoldenEye. And wow, that's quite a gap. It's been a gap. It, I'm... I'm real bad at GoldenEye. Like, I am truly atrocious. Horrible. And and when I was, people were telling me, you should play some Portal. Give it a try. I was going, you got to be kidding me. I've I've only, I've never played FPS games. I'm going to be awful. It's going to be embarrassing. No one's going to have any fun. Turns out I was completely wrong. Everyone else was completely right. Not only was it super fun to play (laughs) and stream, um, but I am very much a huge fan now of this game and this series. Uh, One day I'm going to get time to fiddle around with the fan-made games in the Portal series. Um, I did complete Portal 2, which was really great as well. And one thing that I think this game does really uniquely for the FPS genre is shows its breadth and depth. That you can have an FPS-based game with the uh, perspective changing, all sorts of other unique elements that Portal brings together, and it still be a cohesive game and not just a quirky one-off, oh, look, it's a thing we added to a game, right? It, it just gives it a lot more colorful abilities, depth, and interest. And plus, the music's good. Very nice. Awesome. So, Docs, I, I believe you have something to add. Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I also <laughs> voted Portal. Uh, if you've interacted with me at all on the internet, you know I love Portal. Uh, Portal 2 is my favorite game of all time. I echo everything Red Ox just said. This game is, it's it's fantastic. It's, it's an FPS without a gun that still manages you to keep you involved for 8 to 12 hours. Um, really good stuff. The, the, Perspective changing really comes into play when you're starting to mess with gravity and and how you fly through portals and sometimes you got to switch directions and things like that as you fly through. It's really interesting. Just one of the best puzzle games I think made. I'm going to say one of the best because I know there's Tetris and, and several others that are just great classic puzzle games. But the amount of story that's in this one, along with the unique mechanics, um, I, I think that's awesome. Nice. What about you, Donnie? Well, I, I kind of I put some thought into this one. I actually did. I actually looked at the oh, poll and change. put some thought into it. I've got yeah, right, right. I'm just not a freeloader here on the show. <laughs> um, so I started thinking about driving games and how like some of the very first driving games that allowed you to change the perspective when you're driving. So you could either be uh, looking at the top down of the car, looking at the back of the car, and watching it go down the track, or you could put yourself in the driver's seat of the vehicle. And that was kind of really unheard of for the time 
But the first, I don't remember the first game to actually do it. I think one of the very first games that let you change the perspective was Knight Rider for the Commodore 64. I could be wrong on that, and I'm pretty sure somebody will look this up and actually me if I am. But any specific earlier racing game that allowed you to do that, that made you feel comfortable with how you're going to be playing the game or racing the car, my hat is off to the developers of those games. You know, Donnie, as somebody who has never played a Commodore 64, I've recently looked into several Commodore 64 games for this music class I'm teaching. Ah, We played a bunch of the silly commercials that were advertising the Commodore. It was a lot of fun. But uh, bringing me back to this, I'm really surprised at what that little computer could do for its time. I, I figured... It didn't have such breadth and depth and capabilities. The fact that they had like a piano kind of thing that was part of it. Again, you talked about the driving games and just some of the other platformers and things that they attempted to make at that time. (laughs) It's it's quite, I I thought it was pretty neat. And I I learned a lot looking into it. So I think it's good stuff. Yeah, I think the the first racing game I played where you could change perspectives was like Cruising USA in the arcade. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that was rad because you could be like way above the car kind in third person mode you could be like in the driver's seat or you could be the headlights you know where you were like right <laughs> on the road headlights yeah do you remember a game called hard driving for the arcade yeah absolutely they had that at malibu grand prix i don't I, I was looking at that game i love that game whenever it was in the arcade i don't know if this would necessarily fit into the question that we asked this week but it does deal a lot with perspective as far as sitting in the driver's seat being able to turn your head left and right and look at all the 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 way the 3d worlds move around you that was a pinnacle of its time absolutely and vr today i mean there's some experiences out there like half-life alex i I guess you could say um perspective changing in, in just insane ways with vr but like yeah, I, I totally hear you. The those kind of games where you can actually turn and look and see more of the than just, you know, your little four by three arcade window. Right. Always seemed really cool. Blue, what about you? What did you pick this week? I went with a, a little puzzle game called The Bridge. The Bridge was released in 2013, and the art of The Bridge is all like pencil sketch. So it's all black and white, and it looks hand-drawn. And there's a little character that you have to get from the starting point to a door so that he can leave the level. But the gist of it is, is that it's an M.C. Escher-type world. So you have to change the perspective, rotate things and objects in the world, change the gravity in in order to get the little guy a safe path through to the door. It's a simple concept, but it's super addicting, is super fun, and highly recommend it if you love puzzle games. That does sound cool. I want to check that out. Mm -hmm. Totally. It was only a couple bucks, and it's on pretty much everything. I really enjoyed Fez, which is kind of like puzzle and platforming with perspective changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that sounds Mm -hmm. interesting. I'm into that. Cool. Very nice. All right, let's move on to our patron shoutouts. We couldn't do what we do without the help of our gorgeous patrons. Here are the generous folks supporting Gamers Week on Patreon. Zach Huge Thanks, Number One Blue Sick Voice Fan, John Baran, Sassy Sony, Evil Lust, Rai Rai's Secret Best Friend, Mega Retro Man, Gamatroid, Mora Deeb, Michael Lakite, Emo Esque, Bill Tucker, The Real Retro Game Brews, Fruitcakes Pickled Pepper, Ducks with Thick Thighs, Wizard of Zardoz, Bobs and Dugnut, Loud Moth, Retro Blast Pat, Great Cyaman 81, BNT Zilligai, The Mad Milkman, Seven Castle Forest, Crunchy Kong, Sheriff Snacks, Frank Grande, Love Retro BTW, Steven Sand, Ramboski, 
Terry Kinnair, Doongie Forever, Ducks in Disguise, Don't Make Me Pull Over This Car, Games with Coffee, Hybrid Divide, Matto 1606, You Fall Before Me, Davey PGH, and the Red Ox PDX family, including Shannon and Luke. If you like what you hear today, and we really hope you do, please consider joining us on Patreon. Your support helps cover the cost of producing the show, as well as other cool stuff we'll be doing like prizes and giveaways. You'll also gain access to our weekly patron-only bonus cast called Gamers Week Uncut, Patrons with Benefits. Visit patreon.com slash gamersweek, or follow the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, let's move on to our headline segment. And our headlines are, of course, proudly sponsored by the Retro Game Club podcast. It's a fantastic, family-friendly retro gaming podcast. In each episode, Rob and Hugh pick two games to play and discuss, as well as news, interviews, and other topics. Right now, they're playing through Super Mario 64 and the infamous E.T. Visit them at RetroGameClub.net or follow the link in the show notes. Don't do that. Do <laughs> I'm a little surprised they haven't played E.T. yet, considering all the strange and obscure titles that they've covered. Yeah, it's 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 not terrible. Uh, E.T. Sure? is well, it, I mean, it's not great <laughs> by any means. But I mean, have you played Bubsy 2? I don't think so. That's <laughs> so much worse than E.T. Well, is it, though? I mean, yes, I've, unequivocally. Yes, I've played Super James Pond. I have played some pretty bad games. Hey, Super James Pond is pretty good. Donnie, have you played it lately? <laughs> the Genesis version and then play Bubsy 2 right after it. The Battle of the Trash. <laughs> I love this. That's true. If anybody will know which games are trash, that would be Ducks. Right. So find it, t- tune in next week to the finer things as we play all of the trash games. Uh, well, there you go. There's your hype. Only the yeah. finest trash. Only the it's finest true. trash over on the finer things. Absolutely. Mm. All right. From Forbes, who I disagree with greatly. Uh, the first Borderlands movie trailer is here, and it's something, all right. After being in post-production for what feels like an eternity, Eli Roth's Borderlands movie, somehow starring two Oscar winners, now has a trailer. The three-minute spot introduces us to the cast of Borderlands, which has been slimmed down from the games, presumably because the storyline here is not adapting anything from the games directly at all. And that seems to be a bit of a theme here. The main trio appears to be Lilith, played by Kate Blanchett, Roland, played by Kevin Hart, and Tiny Tina, played by Ariana Greenblatt. Of those, I think only up-and-coming star of young Gamora and young Ahsoka fame, Greenblatt, feels right in the part. Blanchett is a strange choice here, aging up Lilith by a significant margin, though obviously her acting chops know no bounds. I'm not sure they will be tested to their fullest extent here. Her fellow Oscar winner is Jamie Lee Curtis as Tannis, only glimpsed in the trailer. Jack Black is playing Claptrap, and as much as I like him in his voice work, especially in the recent Mario film, it is very weird to have the robot sound wildly different from the one I've heard for roughly 400 hours in the games. I'm going to take a break right here, Forbes. (laughs) First of all, I think this cast is fantastic. Kate Blanchett as Lilith looks awesome. I I don't see what the problem is here. They they all seem fantastic. Uh, Maybe a hot take. I think Jack Black as Claptrap is a thousand times better than Claptrap as Claptrap. That's just me. (laughs) Well, I'm I have to say I'm I'm taking a little issue with this statement about aging up. uh, (laughs) Blanchett. I was like, excuse me. It is 2024, Forbes. We do not ageism like this. Please find someplace else to do that. Thank you. I'll let you continue reading now, though. 
Easily the most bizarre choice here is Kevin Hart as Roland, who neither looks, sounds, nor acts like the Roland from the games, content to do his usual shtick, at least from what we can see here. It feels like he was picked to potentially give the box office a boost as he's a high performer there, but there were a million more logical options on the table, and this makes little sense otherwise. The trailer overall is fine. I think they've gotten the aesthetics down, but I'm curious how they're going to craft this story to be different from all the games we've gotten, along with a cast where maybe half of them at best feel or look right in the roles. It's hard to judge after just three minutes, but it's tough to see this being a hit. I could be wrong, but it's just the vibe I'm getting, which is the same vibe I've gotten through every interview or casting announcement or teaser shot we've gotten from this project. I would love a Borderlands film to be as good as it's one of my all-time favorite series, which helped create one of my all-time favorite genres, the looter shooter, before it got poisoned as of late. There is supposed to be a Borderlands 4 coming out at some point here, if Embracer somehow doesn't tank it as Gearbox's owner. We'll see how this goes, but I'm not exactly holding my breath. I, I really want this this writer and this critic to just like take a chill pill. <laughs> like for real. I mean, Kevin Hart seems fine as Roland. He's got a whole three lines in this trailer. He does the whole thing where he shoots just off frame of the camera, you know, with his gun and he's falling from the sky, hanging on like he's, he's grabbing onto some rope or something like that. But like, yeah, he seems fine as Roland. This this seems really like a harsh criticism of a trailer for let's face it this is like this is a popcorn movie you know what i mean this is this is totally the summer you go with your buddies to see a non-serious movie have a laugh there's explosions everywhere i i don't expect it to be a genre defining cinematic masterpiece i expect it to be <laughs> borderlands which is kind of goofy and campy and terribly acted and and honestly the cast here is better than the game so i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm honestly curious Right. We're not exactly expecting this to be an Oscar winner, but right. I, I wonder if the author of this article had a problem. So he obviously has a problem with Kevin Hart playing this particular role who looks or sounds nothing like the the one in the video game. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I have never played a Borderlands game at all. But I wonder if this person had a problem with Michael Clark Duncan playing the part of Kingpin in the horrific Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck. So do you have the same problem with that with that casting? Because it was it looks nothing like the person in the comics. I mean, come on, give give the person a chance. Yeah, Donnie, I think you're on the right track here because this uh, this um, I'm, I'm going to call it a, an essay. It's trying to be an article. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an opinion piece. Right. And, and you've picked up on another one of the overall themes. So I'm a teacher. And if one of my students, most of which are ages 18 to 21, turned in a submission for homework like this, I would write a comment that said, please see me in my office. And I would hand it back because there is too Ooh. many just elements in this that are just, I have mad feelings today and I'd like to put it in my homework. And that's not going to work for me. Even in an opinion piece, you need to back up your assertions with why you formed this opinion. You get nothing of that here. It's It seems like Forbes is going for some clickbait with this, you know, let's upset some people let's 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 go we're mad at things on the internet and that just doesn't really work for me i wouldn't allow my students to write like this and i think this person should maybe think about it a little bit well it even says right here in the article it's hard to judge after just three minutes and i think that's the most accurate thing yeah. here um is yeah i mean we, it's it's just three minutes again we see kevin hart for like a handful of scenes and he's got mm -hmm. three lines and yeah 
wait a little bit. Let's Absolutely. let's see what the thing is like. I like I said, I I think this is going to be a Borderlands movie, and I I mean I like Borderlands. I've played quite a bit of the first two games. I I think they're fantastic, but there's also quite a bit that is. You know, I hate to use the word, but it's cringy and, and it's <laughs> at times uncomfortable. And you're like, really, you couldn't have wrote something better for that punchline. But, you know, that's that's part of Borderlands, too. So if you like that kind of thing, you're probably going to like this movie. And if you don't, well, it's not going to be your thing. Well, I will take a moment. I'll go to bat a little bit for this author as somebody who's been in, in the shoes uh-huh. of someone like this, who's been <laughs> <laughs> handed a topic and said, write this and make it interesting. Mm hmm. If you if you just praise the trailer from start to finish, you end up with the same article that everybody else has put out. So you got to sure. do something a little bit different. But um, as far as the Kevin Hart thing, it was funny because I Googled Roland from Borderlands and the first search suggestion that popped up was height. We're not the only people to wonder this. Kevin Hart is 5'2", but Roland in the games is 6'2". So perhaps that's where more of their complaint with the casting is coming from, mm-hmm. but... It's a video game movie. You're going to do your best to adapt it. But the the Borderland games are so crazy and edgy and just kind of bonkers that there's no way they're going to capture that all the way in the movie. For one, I don't think it's going to be R-rated. So that will be a big departure is toning down that that kind of stuff. Well, and also, also you have all these people that complain about Jack Reacher, who I guess in the books and stuff is six feet. And then they cast... Tom Cruise, who's a little tiny guy, and they, mm-hmm. they were all in arms about that. But, you know, the, the, thing, the stuff that he did, it worked. Is that's the only thing we're all in arms about with Tom Cruise? What? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> well that, that's, that's one thing you got you to gotta realize when they're going to adapt stuff like this, they're going to want to make their money back. So they're going to cast people like Jack Black and Kevin Hart that are going to guarantee a return, a box office return. Because I was thinking as I watched this trailer, if you had never played these games and didn't know what they were, this trailer probably made no sense to you. And so you're like, well, mm-hmm. I don't know. At least I like Kevin Hart. I don't know what this, <laughs> this nonsense is, but at least I like Kevin Hart. So maybe I'll go see it. But right. the trailer was very clearly trying to capture that same vibe that Guardians of the Galaxy was, like right down to playing electric light orchestra in the trailer. It's like they just copy and pasted what Guardians of the Galaxy did and applied <laughs> it to Borderlands, which that was my main problem with the trailer. I was like, yeah, I mean, it seems just kind of textbook. It's just mm-hmm. going to be a popcorn flick, like Duck said, but I was like, I feel like I've seen this already. Right. Now, see, if that was in the article, I would have agreed with that. A, a lot of this stuff, like, I, I get it. You do have to provide your criticisms. And like I said, I don't I don't think it's going to be fantastic. It's, it's going to be a Borderlands movie. It's not going to be like the best comedy ever made or a great action flick or anything like that. But to your point, Blue, yeah, I think people are going to show up because of the cast. They see the names, mm-hmm. they're going to recognize it. And either you like Borderlands, you like one of the actors, and that, that's what's going to get you there. You know, and as somebody who likes games and space and action adventure stuff, like one of I love a good action movie in in the summer at the big box office. I think that's an absolute blast. I saw most of the Marvel. Okay, absolutely. I got a little little tired of some of the Marvel movies, but I saw most of the Marvel movies and I think it's really fun. But I, uh, you know, Blue, interesting. I didn't pick up the Guardians of the Galaxy vibe, but now that you said that, I can't get it out of my head. You can't unsee it. I can't (laughs) unsee it. But I've learned two things from this discussion. One, a lot of movies just want to be Marvel movies. And yep, they two, do. <laughs> I might be a really tough grader. <laughs> <laughs> do you think somebody's going to hear about this movie? It's like, oh, have you heard about Kate Blanchett's new film? It's called Borderlands. I wonder what it involves. She is a two-time Oscar winner. I must go see this movie. And the next thing you know, they walk out of the theater like, oh, my God. 
God, what? A comic book movie or a video game movie? Psh, bring the Rolls Royce around, Jeeves. <laughs> Indubitably. And who was that young man, Jack Black? What a guy. I've never heard of such a person. <laughs> Hopefully they go buy their popcorn and they're handed the Dune popcorn bucket. And just kind of round out the experience. <laughs> the Dune popcorn bucket. From Insider Gaming, Respawn is developing a first-person Star Wars Mandalorian game. Insider Gaming sources have revealed that Respawn Entertainment is developing a first-person Star Wars Mandalorian game that is in its early stages of development. According to sources, the game will see the player take control of a Mandalorian bounty hunter, unclear who, set during the time when the Galactic Empire is dominating across the galaxy. As a bounty hunter, it's your job to capture bounties dead or alive for cash rewards. As first reported by VentureBeat's Jeff Grubb, the game was being led by Respawn creative director Mohamed Alavi, who left the studio to pursue his next adventure. According to Grubb, who didn't disclose it was a Star Wars game at the time, but has recently, the game will be focused on mobility and style as guiding principles. The game's high mobility has been made possible storytelling-wise thanks to the Mandalorian's jetpack, which allows the player to perform horizontal dashing, vertical jumping, boost sliding, somewhat similar to sliding down hills in Apex Legends, and more. Sources describe the game as very fast-paced, and as such, will reward players who play in this style. For example, the player's health will mainly regenerate based on the successive kills. As to be expected, playing as a Mandalorian bounty hunter gives the player a wide variety of weapons and gadgets, including a wrist rocket, grapple hook, a visor for tagging enemies and bounties, and more. It's understood that the game will not be an open world and have linear levels taking place on a variety of different planets in the Star Wars universe. While it's unclear when the game will be released, it was said we're still a year or two away at the very least. It's currently unclear if the game will have a multiplayer experience or not. Don't we already have a Bounty Hunter Star Wars game? But of course we do. We already have one of every Star Wars game. I don't know, because this sounds like Star Wars 1313, which was that canceled Boba Fett game back okay. in like 2012. Oh, that's fair. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, me yeah. too. But I so I looked into the Bounty Hunter game and I wanted to see how it was kind of similar and different. So there was a Bounty Hunter game that came out for the GameCube. And I've definitely played that at um, like a gaming expo, but I don't own it. I've never sat down and spent any real time with it. And this does sound different. So that game, I believe, was more mission based. You'll correct me if I'm wrong anybody who's played it or Twitter, feel free to well actually me. I'm, I'm here for it. But it was released GameCube, PS2, and then Limited Run put it out for the PS4. And it was focused on the storyline of um, some of the prequels, the Star Wars 1, 2s, and 3s, right? And it, it was like, a, what's his name? Jango Fett, Boba Fett's dad in yes. the Clone Wars. Well, there you go. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's your problem. So it was focused on <laughs> that guy and his story, and that's cool and stuff. And so then it had some of the galactic whatever is in the blah, blah, blah. But I think the thing that was different here, this sounds like it's a unique character. You're not necessarily playing as one specific bounty hunter. Is that what I'm gathering from reading about it? So that could be interesting. It's it's just giving a little highlight uh, almost in a way I like to think about the the Jedi game was it's like okay you're not necessarily Luke Skywalker but you're somebody with this characterization and background and then it's a little more in the universe but not in alignment with a specific movie or story so I think that could be cool I mean I like a game in space this sounds like it could be fun I haven't played a Star Wars game okay 
Y'all are going to get after me for this one. I have not played a Star Wars game since the N64. <laughs> I'm no, not going to no. get after you. Don't worry. You just said that you played uh, a little bit of the GameCube, that one that that one bounty hunter game. Well, but that was like at an expo. Like well, I owned. Uh, well, 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 you just lied on on, <laughs> on recording. So okay, the cannon will be used. The cannon will be used against you. I mean, fair, but I'm I'm just saying. <laughs> I owned the ones for the N64. Those are the last ones I put any time into, and uh, the one on the GameCube. And I guess I have tried probably a like PRG or something. I probably tried a little of the PS2 games as well. There was other Star Wars games for that. that that's the really popular one that people played with where you could what's that my brain has stopped <laughs> knights of the old republic no um, uh, just battlefront i that's what's ah, called. Yeah, okay, okay. that's that's like the really popular ps2 one i feel like yes. and uh yeah they had that out at a prg and i gave it a shot one year way back probably 2016 you want to know what the last star wars game i played was yes star wars connect <laughs> Oof, <laughs> <do> that. Connect. <laughs> it was it was awful but I'm I'm kind of looking forward to this one. I don't I don't really follow the Star Wars. I was in the Star Trek Wars, not the Star Wars Trek. So I I don't really follow the Star Wars. But this looks cool. I'm into FPSs. It sounds like there's some really interesting game mechanics going on there. So uh, as long as it's not like super heavy in cutscenes and lore, where I got to sit through like three movies worth of story, I yeah. might be interested in checking this one out. Let me just grab my popcorn with the Dune Topper. Yeah, it's not directed by Kojima, so I think you should be all right. <laughs> all right. All right. I like the fact that you're not you're not siloed into one specific character, kind of like how they've done with the Jedi or with the Mandalorian. You could be anybody. You could create your own person. Well, we'll see. The article does say it's unclear who you're playing. So it may end up that you end up playing a specific character, but they just haven't announced it yet. We don't know. However, if it does want to eventually include multiplayer, they're going to have to allow people to create their own characters. Of course. And then just take what I just said, throw it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense. You could be completely right. We, we, just, we just don't know yet. That's, that's a lot of what's going on here is we just don't know yet, but it doesn't really matter because it's going to have Star Wars Mandalorian all over it and it's going to sell like gangbusters and they'll probably find a way to shove the little baby Yoda in there somehow because <laughs> well, people I just go do. gaga over that little thing. That's because he's cute. Okay. Well, even when he eats eyeballs. If looks like a so. green potato with ears. He does. Um, <laughs> to be honest, to be, can, I, can I say the thing? To be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Thank to be fair. you. I, uh, I did watch at least one season of The Mandalorian, but the only thing I really enjoyed was just to see what the little guy was going to get into next. <laughs> really? Because if I played this, I would do the thing to the little baby Yoda that everybody did to the baby penguin in Mario 64. <laughs> kick it off bye, a bridge. See you, thank you. The difference is the penguin is going to come back to haunt you, and this guy probably won't. Oh, could use the force. <laughs> sure, he might come back as a force ghost and get you. All right, next up from Games Radar. 27 years later, this cult sci-fi film is getting a new lease of life, thanks to Helldivers 2. And I am officially old. <laughs> let's, let's just ignore that part. <laughs> More than 20 years after its initial release, Starship Troopers is getting a new lease of life thanks to a video game homage that draws on many of the film's central themes. Earlier this month, Helldivers 2 released on PS5 and PC. The over-the-shoulder shooter places players on the front lines of a chaotic, evolving war against a race of insectoid aliens known as the Tyrannoids. That sounds familiar? It might, because at some point in the last 27 years, you caught Starship Troopers, 
a sci-fi film that puts its characters on the front lines of a chaotic, evolving war against a race of insectoid aliens known as arachnids. There's an obviously pulpy comparison to be drawn between Starship Troopers and Helldivers 2, in part because while the former is an adaptation of a 1950s novel of the same name, the latter is a pretty faithful reimagining of the film. In fact, that reimagining is so faithful that one viral tweet labeled Helldivers 2 an unlicensed Starship Troopers game. When it was released in 1997, Starship Troopers was widely criticized for what was then received as an endorsement of the fascistic elements of the society that underwrites the film's action sequences, man. One that is steeped in propaganda, is heavily militaristic, and thrives on xenophobia. Those themes also rear their heads throughout Helldivers 2, along with an intro sequence that feels as though it could have been lifted directly from Starship Troopers. Helldivers 2 happens to be going through a meteoric rise on gaming platforms, overtaking games like Starfield and GTA 5 on its way into Steam's Top 25 and beating Fortnite on PS5. And rising quietly behind it is Starship Troopers. According to online TV ratings tracker Television Stats, in recent days the film has seen its viewership stats, Wikipedia popularity, and IMDb rank all rise considerably. With that spike in interest has come another re-examination of Starship Troopers' themes, which has likely further spurred on its increase in attention on Twitter. Social media discourse about the nuances of totalitarianism is unlikely to prove particularly valuable, but it's safe to say that the link between Helldivers 2 and its three-decade-old inspiration is fascinating. It's pretty rare that a video game drives a flood of attention to any film, let alone a cult hit from nearly 30 years ago. Screw you for saying 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) A couple episodes ago, we talked about Helldivers 2 as it was a new release. I think myself and Blue said we weren't going to play it. Ryan said he possibly could get into it. And now all of a sudden, Helldivers 2 is like the, the pinnacle of popularity right now. Everybody's flocking to it. It's it's so popular that their servers are crashing because there's too many people playing it. I was going to say just cue the Zap Brannigan. I'll say wave after wave of men at my disposal in the game, right? I mean, it's exactly better than men. How do we prepare them? I remember when we first, when I first saw this trailer and I said, is this a Starship Troopers game? Because that was the exact tone. And like you said, you're fighting giant bug aliens. And mm-hmm. then uh, it's it's really interesting to see that it's causing renewed interest in this little cult film from 1997. I remember watching Starship Trooper the first time and just being kind of weirded out by it and not really sure what to think of it. Because the thing about Starship Troopers, the book, was like a wholehearted embrace of fascism. Like they meant what they wrote. And then Starship Troopers, the movie, took it into parody form Mm -hmm. and made fun of this type of fascism and xenophobia. And yet at the same time, it was like the parody was clear, but then at the end, it kind of threw me because nobody ever learned their lesson. They just kept doing it and were, you know, whatever, whatever the personal cost, nobody ever questioned it, which was kind of caused this dissonance with me. And I guess I needed to mature a little bit to really appreciate the film from its own perspective. But it's nice to see that the film is holding on, that a new generation is becoming interested in it and seeing in it. And considering the way that media has gone the last, dare I say, 27 years, I think people will appreciate it more than than we did in 1997. I think you're on to something there, Blue. And I was thinking to myself, I've never seen Starship Troopers. And then I looked at some of the footage from the film and I have seen it. But I was, again, much too young to really appreciate it or understand that it was intended to be uh, satire in even a criticism. But then again, I don't remember the ending super precisely, but I looked up a little bit and I and I can definitely see how uh, its effect at the end is to leave you questioning 
Like it's not, it's supposed to make you sort of question your feelings and also question what the movie's about. And that's the unsettling tone that it, that it, yeah. it, it strikes. And with that, um, I think that's why there's still controversy over this today. People not getting that it's the movie specifically. I'm actually not familiar with the book at all, but the movie specifically is supposed to be satire. And so I'm curious about, um, where the discussion will go with this. But, you know, another thing that occurs to me with the hell divers too, as what Donnie said, is that it's suddenly everybody's playing it everywhere all at once. And it's always interesting. Interesting to me when we see phenomena like this in gaming where suddenly it's like, okay, everybody everywhere is playing it. I wonder how long it's going to last that it stays at that kind of peak hype. You know, there's been mm-hmm. some games that had that hype and it actually lasted for quite a long time. Um, I think a great one was Animal Crossing. We thought the Animal Crossing New Horizons one would be very brief that a bunch of fans that like Animal Crossing would play it. But because of COVID and everybody being at home, it became this huge phenomena that everybody's playing. And then recently it was Pal World. Mm-hmm. Everybody, all the college students are playing Pal World. All of them, right? This game's $40. So I'm interested to see if it's price, it's accessibility for, okay, I can play it on Steam and how does it run on my computer? It's on different platforms and stuff like that. I'm just interested to see how long it's going to last for, if it's going to stick around for a bit or if it's going to be just here and gone. I wonder yeah. if that's kind of symptomatic of just so many games being released mm-hmm. every year and there's more and more and more. It's it's a little competitive out there. It seems like there is something big and, and new and cool coming out every month, sometimes mm-hmm. every few weeks, like we're seeing. What, great point. I mean, with Pal World, it wasn't that long ago. And now Helldivers 2 is climbing up the charts and, you know, taking the spot. It's just wild how fast things shift. So because you guys are talking to the dummy of the podcast there was a starship troopers book yes starship troopers is is uh based on a book loosely i am today years old and i just now realized that that's because the the book is a a wholesale approval of fascism so nobody carries it nobody sells it okay (laughs) you know it's one of those things like let's just pretend this doesn't exist when you say xenophobia i mean obviously the definition of xenophobia is dislike or prejudice against people from other countries the only things from other countries in the movie were the damn aliens who were there to kill everybody yeah, I think, you know, for all its other faults, Ender's Game handles that a little bit better, where they, they spend their whole lives fighting these bugs, and then at the end, they realize, you know, the bugs were maybe not so evil. Right. Oh. Bugs just needed a hug. It's cool. <laughs> right. Bugs got Ender, feelings. like, feels bad for eradicating their, their whole species. Right. Oh. Like, oh, we should have done that. Dang it. Yeah. Sorry. That's that's us. That's our yeah, bad. My bad. Why doesn't it everybody? Why doesn't anybody ever bring like pizza to offer up? You know what I mean? <laughs> like you show up with pizza to the the UFO landing. Every everybody's going to be cool. They're going to be like, oh, this this is a peaceful a peace offering. Mm-hmm. Clearly, cheese pepperoni. Yeah. That's peace. Yeah. We don't know about these uh, Earthlings. They seem real dumb, but but the pizza's good. Little Caesars <laughs> is is a declaration of war. You don't want to. You don't want to do that. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our top three new releases for the week. First up, we have Inculinati, I guess. That's how you say that. Inculinati. 
on PS5, Xbox Series X and S, PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. Inquilinati is a turn-based strategy game straight from medieval manuscripts where a rabbit's bum can be deadlier than a dog's sword. Don't let the looks fool you. Inquilinati is a game of nuance and brain-sizzling challenge that will test even the most hardened strategists. Become a master of the living ink, build your own bestiary, defeat medieval superstars, and collect perks to unleash hidden powers. Next up is Pacific Drive out on PS5 and PC. Pacific Drive is a first-person driving survival game with your car as your only companion. Navigate a surreal reimagining of the Pacific Northwest and face supernatural dangers as you venture into the Olympic Exclusion Zone. Each excursion into the wilderness brings unique and strange challenges as you restore and upgrade your car from an abandoned garage that acts as your home base. Gather precious resources and investigate what's been left behind in the zone. Unravel a long-forgotten mystery while learning exactly what it takes to survive in this unpredictable, hostile environment. And lastly is Splatoon 3 Expansion Pass, Side Order, out on Switch. Challenge yourself to a new single-player campaign, Side Order. As Agent 8, you wake up to discover Angopolis Square has been drained of color and its residents have gone missing. Looming over the city is the ominous Spire of Order. Alongside a drone who claims to be off-the-hook member Pearl, Agent 8 must fight off waves of enemies in floor after floor of challenges on their way to the top of the spire and learn its secrets. Use color chips to boost your abilities in this experience that's designed to be replayed over and over. So out of these three this week, what are you up for, Donnie? The first game that I'm going to just completely pass by and not even give it a look is Splatoon 3 The Expansion Pass because I've never played a single Splatoon game and I'm not going to start now with an Expansion Pass. So that's out of the window. Inkalinati, while it looks like it can be funny from the trailer I've seen, uh, something is farting fire on another thing. And <laughs> while that's cool, eh, just the way it looks, I don't really want to waste my time on it. Not waste my time on it. It just doesn't look like it's for me, uh, which leaves us with Pacific Drive, which is funny. I like the Pacific Northwest, but it's a first person driving survival game. That's kind of a weird combination. Uh, I think based on that alone might give it uh, a look or two. I don't really know what to expect. I saw the trailer and yeah, you're first person, you're driving through the Pacific Northwest, you're dodging things being thrown at your car, but then you're also getting out and trying to explore and, and get survival stuff. It's a big maybe, but I think this might be the only one that I'm looking at this week. Okay. What do you think, Dux? I, I too do not play Splatoon, so no expansion pass for me, uh, but I, I'm sure the kids will get a kick out of it, so we'll probably end up <laughs> with it here. Um, Inkalunati does look interesting. I, I love wild out there kind of stuff, but uh, it also doesn't, it's just not my thing. Um, but Pacific Drive does look pretty cool, so I do like first person open world survival games, mostly because there's just when you put that many mechanics and AI systems and things like that together in a big open world, something's bound to go wrong. And that's one of my favorite things in gaming. So might <laughs> check this out just for that, because it gives off the vibe that there might be some of that out in the woods. Um <laughs> But also, it does just, it seems kind of like a unique premise, the first-person driving survival. It looks gorgeous. And uh, now living in the Pacific Northwest, I, I'm really interested to check it out, actually. This, this might be a fun one. I, I might look into this a bit more. Nice. What about you, Redux? Well, I think I'm keeping in alignment with everybody else so far. So, yeah, we'll get the expansion pass for the kids. Uh, they definitely enjoy Splatoon, which I am truly terrible at. So I won't be playing that. Reality is this week... 
I'm not going to be playing any of these games. I'm getting ready to move the studio and getting ready for <laughs> music class. I'm yeah, busy. but if you weren't. But if I was going to pick one up. So first, I checked out that uh, Inkluminati, Inkluminati, whatever. But it's basically an Illumination manuscript game, which I thought was kind of hysterical. What an idea. The trailer was, was kind of silly and funny. Um, but I think I'd rather watch somebody stream that then actually play it myself. Uh, I'd love to see somebody make it just ridiculous. Do it up Cult of the Lamb style. Make it crazy and silly. Um, but I'm not sure that I have the patience or the know-how for a turn-based strategy game from the start to, to really uh, enjoy what could be kind of brought out of it. So I'm going to go again with Pacific Drive. So here's the thing. I just watched a little more, not just the trailer, but some gameplay footage. They've done a really good job of making this look like... Um, uh, Washington and Oregon. It looks like Oregon driving through the coast range. And I know it's the Olympic uh, area up in Washington. And let me tell you, they captured it. That is what that looks like. A lot of, you know, one direction uh, each way. So two lane highways on a cliff with a guardrail and the mountain is next to you and the ravine is down below and it's switchbacks and there's no other cars in sight. So they really did a great job in how this game looks, how it feels and everything. I, I, I want to hop in the car and drive out to the beach now. Yeah, I can confirm. <laughs> we we drove the coast last year and it mm-hmm. it yeah, this yeah. this trailer, I was like, wow, hey, yeah, this is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice. What about you, Blue? What are you picking up this week? Well, I'm sorry, Splatoon 3 expansion pass side order. I will put you to the side for now and send you off to more welcoming arms. You're not for me. (laughs) Pacific Drive, it looks interesting, but I think this is a game I would rather watch somebody stream, which leads me to Inglinati, and that's actually one I'm very interested in. It looks like Canterbury Tales come to life, and I think that will be funny to see what's in it. And I'm also, when they say it's a game of nuance and brain-sizzling challenge, yes, please. I would like that. I would like to test myself against those puzzles and challenges and see see how I stack up. So of these three, that is what I would go for. Okay, so perfect solution. Blue, you get mm. to stream the first one, the Ink Lunati. <laughs> okay? And we'll get Donnie to stream Pacific Drive. And then we'll all be happy. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. No third game necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan's listening to this right now going, wait, all streams, Splatoon. That's okay, buddy. We you can you can take the night off. We're good. All right, let's move on to our main topic. From gamesindustry.biz. For Sony and Microsoft, revenue growth is more important than any console war. Not so long ago, the announcement that Sony didn't have any new entries in its major first-party franchises in the pipeline for the coming year would have been viewed as an extraordinary opportunity for Microsoft to gain ground on the market leader. There are many reasons why Xbox has faced an uphill struggle against its major rival. Brand strength and digital library lock-in are certainly among them, but the ultimate, seemingly insurmountable barrier was Sony's first-party studio system, which delivered an extraordinary lineup of hit software throughout the PS4 era and carried over into the current generation, seemingly without stumbling, until now. Microsoft's own difficulties in building a portfolio of studios that could rival that lineup is well documented. Its travails were constantly magnified by unflattering comparisons with PlayStation Studios seemingly humming along and turning out a steady supply of hit games. 
By some interpretations, at least, Microsoft has now spent the better part of one hundred billion, one hundred billion dollars. Thank you, thank you. Laser beams, <laughs> lasers, trying to close that gap, becoming in the process one of the biggest game publishers in the world. It's not clear how exactly Sony has managed to mess up so badly as to leave a year-long gap in its major release pipeline right in the middle of the generation at a crucial point where high-profile releases play a key role in sustaining installed base growth. There's probably a confluence of factors at play here. 2024 is going to be a tough year for releases generally due to a ripple effect from pandemic era delays. That's an effect being felt across the whole industry, but for Sony more specifically, it's fair to wonder if the company's hard left turn into live service gaming, a top-down strategic pivot that looks more short-sighted and misguided by the day, might also be playing havoc with its ability to deliver a steady flow of software for its platform. Whatever the underlying causes, the effect is the same. It's going to be a remarkably quiet year for PlayStation. The longer that drought continues, the harder it's going to become to ignore the voices which point out how many of the PS5's major games are actually PS4 remakes or cross-generation titles. The market leader's stumble is an opportunity for its rivals, though, right? That's the logic of the console war framing. At least Sony's weakness is Microsoft's opportunity. This is a year-long window in which Microsoft can draw focus to its own games without being subjected to constant comparison to its rival's lineup. An opportunity to consolidate its acquisitions, beat the drum for a Game Pass, and inject some life back into the moribund competition between the PS5 and the Series XS consoles. All of that remains true, at least to some extent, and Microsoft will no doubt make at least some hay while this fortuitous sun is shining on it. A hardware refresh for the Series X seems to be on the way this year. For example, which judging from leaked information looks significantly more interesting than Sony's deeply lackluster hardware update for the PS5 and should help to drive at least some sales. The process of pushing Activision Blizzard's library onto Game Pass is also likely to generate some positive attention over the course of the year. These things would be good for Microsoft's position in the market at any time. In a year when Sony has little to offer, they'll be even more effective than usual. The traditional logic of platform holder competition hasn't disappeared entirely. And yet, it's hard to escape the sense that we're not in that console war paradigm anymore. That what would once have been seen as a major stumble by Sony is now eclipsed by the broader problems faced by the market as a whole. It's remarkable timing that Sony's admission that the software pipeline has been allowed to run dry came in the same week that Xbox fans were stealing themselves for the possibility that Microsoft might be about to abandon platform exclusivity and put its major titles on Sony and Nintendo consoles. Hey, you guys talking about Xbox going third party? (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen. Only the most conspiratorial of gaming influencers whipping up interest in their coverage by making wild implications actually pushed the idea that Microsoft could go the way of Sega and abandon hardware altogether. We actually fell for it. But there was certainly a widespread... We didn't fall for it. I mean, we, we kind of put a little bit of stock into it. We, we got to get interest in the episode. That's true. That's true. <laughs> But there was certainly a widespread belief that the company's multi-platform ambitions would be more far-reaching than what was eventually announced, namely that four as yet unnamed titles, all at least a year old, will be launching on other platforms. This is an evolution of Microsoft's prior strategy, not a revolution. 
the company already sells and operates many games on rival platforms, grandfathered in through the various publishers and developers it has brought in recent years. So expanding this to include some more titles isn't all that dramatic. However, the week of wild speculation, which Microsoft either deliberately or unknowingly encouraged by pre-announcing a business update rather than simply issuing a quick statement, did focus attention on the core tension at the heart of Microsoft's game business. Namely, the fact that their acquisition spree has ended up tethering one of the industry's leading games publishing businesses to a console hardware business that's in distant third place behind its rivals. Oof. (laughs) This tension restricts Microsoft's maneuvering significantly. If it focuses all of the efforts of its acquired studios and publishers on supporting the Xbox consoles with exclusive software, it will certainly grow the hardware and salt base. But in the process, it will crash the revenues of its studios by denying them the ability to sell games on the more successful consoles. That won't fly with Microsoft's upper management, who expect a return of their enormous investment. On the other hand, if it focuses entirely on that aspect, then it risks losing out on its platform ambitions and locking itself into a future of having to pay 30% share of a very large part of its gaming revenue to Sony or Nintendo. Neither option is palatable. Microsoft wants to find a third way and is navigating between two objectives that are far from easy to reconcile. This is pretty new ground for the console war, so much so that I'm not sure the console war framing is even especially useful in understanding what's happening here. The thing is, Sony faces a similar set of questions on its side of the aisle. It's in a stronger position in some regards. It has a console platform with a much larger install base, after all. But the core challenges are still the same. Sony's lack of major titles in the coming year is its own screw-up. But over the longer term, there's a bigger question over how the company grows its gaming revenue. A question that's become more and more pressing as console install bases have remained stubbornly capped somewhere in the 100 to 120 million range over the past decade or so. There's only so much money to be extracted from a static customer base. The question of where Sony's next big growth spurt in gaming is going to come from is a more thorny and existential one for the company than anything to do with competition from Microsoft. If anything, that competition, over a market that seems to lack growth potential, feels like a distraction for both companies, a huge investment of resources that could be better put to use in trying to figure out where the next big market expansion might come from. Consequently, just as Microsoft is trying to figure out its strategy and its messaging for a cross-platform future of some kind, Sony is also juggling the same concerns with its launches of first-party games on PC, its acquisition of Bungie, and its possibly misguided live service ambitions all pointing to a future where Sony games exist well beyond the PlayStation hardware. None of this is to say that competition between Sony and Microsoft will disappear. Microsoft would dearly love to have Sony's console install base, and Sony will work hard to avoid losing that position. However, it feels more and more like the console war is a sideshow. The real priority for both of these companies is figuring out how to grow out of the evolutionary niche in which AAA gaming has found itself, and on the way to that objective, strategies that might seem insane from the perspective of the console war have found themselves firmly back on the agenda. To start off the discussion, I like this part where it says... The week of wild speculation, which Microsoft either deliberately or unknowingly encouraged by pre-announcing a business update rather than simply issuing a quick statement, they did that on purpose. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. That that whole business update podcast thing that they did, that was a meeting that could have been an email. They were trying to drum up controversy and hype for this move, which was so much nothing. It's like, here's four games. They're all a year old. Everybody's kind of bored with them already. So we'll go ahead and port them. No big deal. Like, really, that was it. But 
the interesting part about all that is the wild week of speculation was mainly fueled because people could see it happening. Everybody is aware of the fact that Microsoft is in third place behind Sony as far as consoles go. The fact that the vast majority of the Xbox player base plays digital now. Physical is not a priority for most gamers. So it makes sense. Everybody could see it happening, and yet they didn't want to because so many of us are afraid of that digital future. But it will happen. And I was still a little bit surprised to see that Microsoft said, no, 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 we're going to keep making consoles, relax. I couldn't help but feel like that was just something to make a small percentage of the player base happy and maybe save some pride. Microsoft is definitely in in the Sega position right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's not looking great. They've never really got a, a foothold on any markets outside of the U.S., And even here, they've had one really successful console in the Xbox 360. All their other attempts have done okay, middling, or, you know, not the greatest. I think, yeah, Microsoft should continue making Xboxes, but they're already basically PCs. But I mean, why not expand your Windows platform and ship it with Trials of Game Pass or, you know, make a specialized Microsoft box with a graphics card and a decent CPU, you know, something developers can target and just Mm -hmm. make it a PC or, you know, just expand the market you already got. I think that would be the play, but and then just call it an Xbox. But yeah, I don't see them just abandoning that anytime soon. They've They've gotten all these developers on board. They've spent so much money on acquisitions. I don't see them abandoning the Xbox brand as a whole. Hardware in general, though, I mean, to your point, Blue, yeah, we're we're firmly in the digital era now, and it's not going to be too long before streaming starts to get legs and Xbox's Game Pass streaming service becomes more and more relevant. Mm-hmm. So, Ducks, I really like two things you said. First of all, the Sega comparison I thought was really interesting because when we were thinking about, you know, Sega sort of, uh, I know, pour one out for Sega, Donnie, but as Sega sort of dropped (laughs) out a bit. Leave Sega alone! Leave them alone! (laughs) They're good kids over there with their Sonic games. Anyway, and they were making, you know, and Sega still exists game-wise, but they stopped making consoles. I don't think that's necessarily, uh, again, a mistake in any way, shape, or form for uh, for Microsoft, because Microsoft isn't going to go anywhere. We're not going to suddenly stop having Microsoft around as a company. They're one of the most successful companies around, I believe, still, and they have a pretty good business plan most of the time. From what I heard, I'm not a big business lady. I'm doing my best here to understand it. But the <laughs> other piece about that is, you know, so that I, that point I, was what I wanted to say about Microsoft's not going anywhere compared to Sega that did go somewhere. Yeah, but, <laughs> Sega didn't have money. Microsoft has they money. Got, they got That's money. Fair. Yeah. yeah, you know, they're not going anywhere. So anyway, so that was kind of point one. And then uh, point two is interesting about that, ex, the, uh, you know, oh, Phil Spencer, Xbox boss. I just wanted to say that Drink. on the podcast. Drink. Thank you. Anyway, they, uh, you know, I was talking, this was again a topic in my class with my music students because they're studying video game music. And uh, some of them watched it and they said the first thing one of my students said when I said, how was it on the next class was it could have been an email. And I think, again, <laughs> again you know, it was, it was targeted to generate some hype. We don't have much to tell you. So we're going to put this thing out there to get people interested in what we're doing. We've seen the right. same thing from Nintendo. We've seen the same thing from Sony. It's about keeping that trickle of people interested in going, what are we going to do next? I don't know about you, but I watched the uh, Nintendo Direct today. 
I wasn't expecting much, and I didn't get much. There was some stuff that seemed cool. I mean, as a retro gamer, I was excited for some of that rare stuff that's going to be on the uh, Switch Online, mm-hmm. all about it. But again, it was like, ah, that was all right. And the last um, Sony PlayStation State of Play, I believe they're called, that was also like, that's neat. That's okay. So we're kind of in this lull, and I think uh, what we're going to see, again, is it'll see how things shake out in the next few months. But uh, yeah, I, I don't disagree with this article about this is pretty new ground for the console war. It's really changing the face of how these companies interact with their physical hardware products. And again, back to my class, I learned that one of the reasons console gaming became a thing in the 80s and 90s, especially is because your console was affordable while a computer was too expensive and now things are starting to shift a little bit yes a computer is still more expensive to build from scratch but there's a lot more options and they certainly are much more affordable than they were than they were right Right, than they (laughs) they used to be they're still too much money but they're, they're less comparatively than they were I don't know. I've seen the prices of those graphic cards. I don't think so. Yeah. Modern graphics card industry is a complete disaster. But it's interesting that the console war thing is being brought up here because it's it's kind of playing out like that again because we have Microsoft making a new promise on this business update saying that the next Xbox is going to be the largest leap in generational hardware ever which wow them some <laughs> strong words I, I i had my super nintendo when i remember when i saw the ps1 <laughs> right. and i was like wait a minute <laughs> I, I would be yeah <laughs> exactly i would be amazed to see another leap like that so with claims like that yeah here comes the console war all over again yeah and honestly with a declaration like that, I don't see a difference between the PS4 and the PS5 or the Xbox One and the Xbox X. To me, that's not a giant leap. So you're going to have to do something absolutely bonkers to really back up that statement. And I got to be honest, throughout Xbox's entire existence, I've never understood why they're a company. They're just doing exactly the same thing that Sony is doing. That's it. They made a console that does exactly what Sony does. Doesn't do anything better. Doesn't do anything worse. It does exactly what Sony does. Why? That's like saying, why do we need both McDonald's and Wendy's? Right. Because money is green. Right? Uh, no, no, no. No, no, no. That's not, that's not the same at all. Wendy's has the Baconator. Wendy's, Wendy's has the <laughs> bacon cheeseburger. McDonald's has the golden arches and the fries and everything like that that you're well known for. But they do the same thing. They sell cheap burgers <sighs> and fries. Right, I'm here for fries. I'm here for games. <laughs> Different what tastes. Games and fries. Your point, I get your point, because mm-hmm. once upon a time, there was a lot bigger of a difference between Xbox and PlayStation because they had more exclusives. You could do the, uh, the Halo thing on Microsoft mm-hmm. or on Xbox. Like, that was huge. That was huge. And you know, Sony saw the hype of Halo and just went, how come we didn't have that? But then they got a DVD player, so it's all good. Mm. There were real tangible differences between the two. And as time has gone on, those differences have become less and less. And the reality is, is that being an exclusive, unless you're one of their first party studios, being an exclusive often doesn't pay off. So games don't really do it. They want to release as many places as possible. I think Phil Spencer saying the thing about, oh, this is going to be the greatest generational jump of console graphics you've ever seen, whatever. <clears throat> no, he's straight up talking out of his ass. 
<laughs> he's a media guy and he knows that the media cycle must be fed and it must be fed every day, which is in contrast to how games move. They take years to make. There's not updates and news every single day. Right. So if you can put something out like that and the news media will eat it up because they got to eat every single day and they'll get weeks out of that one statement. Does he have to back it up? No, not for like a decade. So yeah, no worries. He's just going to talk out of his ass. We're going to get some good press out of it. It's all good. Yeah, I think the returns on visual fidelity have have gotten pretty slim at this point. I mean, yeah, you can push frame rates a little more. You can push resolution a little more. But until somebody does something with the control or screen paradigm that we currently have with our video games, right? You have a thing that you hold in your hands and a screen that you look at and you play the game. Until that changes, I don't see a huge evolution, revolutionary jump like we saw from 16 to 32 bit uh, anytime soon. Yeah, ducks. Everybody knows the next big technology advancement is the holodeck, of course. <laughs> I was going to go with haptic VR suits, but sure, holodeck too. <laughs> Same thing. Yep. Yes to all. That sounds <laughs> awesome. All right, before we move on, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. This segment is proudly sponsored by A Gamer Looks at 40 podcast. The show explores the history of games through the stories and experiences of the people who lived it. The show is returning March 4th with a multi-month deep dive into the world of Final Fantasy. This week, Bill recommends episode 44, formed by Final Fantasy VI, a one-on-one conversation with professor of game design and founder of Winterian Studios, Daniel Greenberg. During the episode, Daniel discusses how Final Fantasy VI touched nearly every aspect of his personal and professional life. So this week's question is, if you were asked to teach a college course on a video game, which title or series would you pick Ooh. and why? Let Bill know your answer by sending him a tweet at a at 40 on Twitter. So, Redox and Ducks, this is an interesting question to have on your week because you guys have done this exact thing. Yes, we have done exactly this. Uh, I'm going to let Redox go first because yeah. she's designed a whole course on this topic. Well, thanks, gang. Yes, it's been super fun and a uh, entire new sort of adventure for me. So for those of you listening out there in the podcast verse, I'm a professor of nursing. Uh, nursing practice. I teach undergraduate nursing students. And then several months ago, I was approached by the chair of the music department. Uh, at the university that I teach. And he'd heard that I am a musician and I like video games and I do video game music stuff. And he was um, interested in trying to help grow options for jobs for music students and thought that this would make an interesting course and wanted to know if I just wanted to straight up teach it. And I said, uh, yeah. And so uh, <laughs> in the last few months, I've been working to put together a 16-week course uh, for the students in the junior and senior year, primarily, that are undergraduates, 18 to 21-year-old, you know? And uh, we've had a really great semester. We're almost halfway through. It's spring break in a couple weeks, and uh, it's going really well. One of the weeks um, Ducks got to guest lecture with me and um, you taught PC retro gaming to modern a bit. We touched a bit on modern. And then uh, a lot of topics in the course, what we've one of, the th one of the things that's been a big challenge has been not knowing where the students were or their background. And secondly, not having a text specific to the course. There's very few academic video game music texts. That's a shame. Uh, it really is. And I would love to fill that gap 
up someday. So when I'll get around to it, maybe. But there's there's you know not a lot of material. So getting the students all on the same page from all these different majors and then getting them sort of to one focal point and then moving forward has been a lot of fun. And what we've done is we've done a tour through history of video games. We started with Pong. And so far, we've worked our way up to the Wii U, and we're going to continue forward in uh, more development and deep dives on individual games. So this past class on Tuesday, um, I taught a class on indie games, some of the ones with the best scores and scores that they can access through the internet or they can buy a book or a soundtrack of. I thought that was a good way to piece it together. So we talked about, in 90 minutes, Hollow Knight, Celeste, uh, Mario Paint and Mario Maker to open it just because they're interesting music games that are unlike other Mario games. You have all these options in Mario Maker to make like those automated levels that play music. It's very cool. I'm missing a whole bunch more, but I guess we talked about a whole bunch of games that are all independent games with great scores. Oh, Stardew Valley was another one we spent quite a bit of time on. And then I asked the students to teach back to me um, a handful of different games that they liked that were independent game. Um, One of them that came up was Journey, uh, Limbo, and Inside came up. Mm -hmm. Ah, yes. Uh, Very great games. Really good. Uh, Subnautica, Super Meat Boy. Were, those were all games that people selected. And it's been really interesting because I've gotten to hear a lot of perspectives from, well, the younger generation about what they enjoyed in independent gaming and what made those games special. I'm really looking forward to the homework this week where they're going to write about it, actually. And I've really enjoyed all of the different things they've done. I, If I was still in college, I couldn't have signed up for that class fast enough. Yeah, it, it was really great. I was uh, lucky enough to guest lecture. So so I guess my answer on this would be uh, Doom was actually the series that I picked to talk about. Uh, the topic was PC gaming, music and history. So I, I thought about what's still around today that had a strong musical identity back then. And if you hear the title track for Doom, E1M1, you know, OK, that's Doom's music. Um, And I think it's really cool how they carried that theme forward through Doom 2, 3, and into 2016, and then Eternal. Uh, I think Mick Gordon did a fantastic job translating those those old MIDI tracks into really awesome metal, electronic, synth. I don't know what you would call it, but it's beautiful. Um, So yeah, we did a a composer spotlight on Mick Gordon, showed his behind-the-scenes process to develop the 2016 soundtrack, which was really cool. The students got a kick when he uh, pulled out the nine string guitar. There was a lot of, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty cool. So yeah, uh, that was, that was the series that I picked. All right. Thank you for coming students. Please take your seats. Welcome back to professor Rybred's gaming history. One Oh one. I am adjunct professor Donnie G retro, and I will be leading the lecture today. In today's lesson, we will talk about a revolution on the concept of gaming on the go in the early 2000s. Look up there. Is it a phone? Is it a handheld gaming console? Is it a taco? No, it's the Nokia N-Gage. I'm sad there's no tacos. (laughs) (laughs) Could we trade the N-Gage for tacos? Yes, Yes. that is a great deal. We, We really could. (laughs) <laughs> there is no eating in class on my time. This is my time. <laughs> I let my students eat in class. Come on, man. Mr. Head, isn't this like our time? You know what? You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> now, when you ask people to list companies that pioneered gaming on the go, I'm guessing Nokia is likely going to be one of the last names people come up with, if at all. But the truth is, Nokia was one of the few companies that had some success mixing the idea of handheld gaming with a mobile phone style device. 
their Engage phone slash handheld was one of the transitional forms of devices that paved the way for modern electronics like the iPhone, Android, and even the Nintendo Switch. Let's jump back to that era and discuss the history of the company Nokia first, so we have some context. Nokia Corporation has a similar history to that of Nintendo and was founded in 1865 in Nokia, Finland, essentially producing a product that years later they would not be known for. It began its life as a pulp mill. Wonder if they did business with the Scandinavian version of Dunder Mifflin. Oh man, I'd watch that show. And later expanded into various industries. In the 1980s and 1990s, Nokia transitioned to the telecommunications sector, becoming a leading mobile phone manufacturer. The company played a pivotal role in the development of GSM technology and gained widespread popularity with iconic devices like the Nokia 3310. You know the phone that has become a meme as being virtually indestructible? Did anyone have one back in the day? And have you used it to vanquish your enemies attached to a handle thrown like the Viking god of thunder? <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Nokia is essentially one of the powerhouses in the late 90s when it comes to phones. They have a worldwide market and are getting bigger and bigger by the year. Nokia was noticing the fanaticism around the video game world and decided to dip their toe in that massive ocean and essentially try to lure gamers away from Nintendo and their ever popular Game Boy Advance. At the time, Nokia was starting to develop smartphones as well with the addition of the Symbian operating system to their PDAs, personal digital assistants for you youngins out there, as they competed with the likes of Palm to take over that marketplace. But the N-Gage was pretty innovative for its time, combining the access to the web of a PDA and a cartridge-based video game system all in one. On paper, the idea sounds amazing, especially for that time, as online gaming was getting a lot of hype with the likes of Dreamcast, PlayStation, and PCs becoming more popular as the years progressed. However, taking into consideration the technology of the time and understanding that trying to fit the functionality of the PDA in a handheld console into a device that could fit in your pocket was a truly ambitious idea and still keep it affordable for the average gamer made it essentially an impossibility. Now let's focus on the device itself. Aesthetically, it looked a little odd. Take the Nokia 3310, move the screen into the middle, tip it on its side, add a bulge to the bottom, huh? And a D-pad on the left side of the screen. <laughs> How big of a bulge? <laughs> All I heard was bulge and D-pad. Anyway. <laughs> Eventually, you get the one of the strangest looking phones, handheld consoles to ever exist. In fact, it was so odd that it gathered a nickname over time, the Taco Phone, since it resembled the shape of a taco. But we wouldn't recommend covering this one with hot sauce. Now, if this came out today, knowing Taco Bell's collabs with PlayStation and Xbox, you know there would be a Taco phone giveaway, and I'd gain 100 pounds trying to get one. Fact. <laughs> We're a gaming podcast, so I'll skip over the phone parts of this one. That is not why you're here. So let's talk about how you game on this thing. One of the best features about the Game Boy is that you can swap out games pretty quickly. Not so much with the Engage. To swap out games, you have to remove the battery cover and battery of the phone to put the small carts into the system. Meaning if you were doing anything important at the time, you'd have to basically shut the phone completely off to change games. Serious design flaw. But I am guessing that was a result of having to engineer something that didn't really exist. The Engage released 58 games, 56 in North America, which included titles like Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, Call of Duty, FIFA Football 2004, Spider-Man 2, and Tomb Raider. 
The biggest issue with playing games on the N-Gage was the screen. At 2.1 inches, it required games developed for the system to be scaled to that size screen or ported to the system with very watered-down graphics. Again, it's not the size, it's how you use it. Oddly enough, there were some really great games for the system. They're just frustrating to play. For example, Lara Croft looks like an ant while you're exploring all the ancient ruins of Tomb Raider. And we know why most teenage boys bought Tomb Raider. No, why? <laughs> yeah, explain it to us, Donnie. Gosh. Triangles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Ducks said it perfectly. <laughs> In my opinion, the coolest feature of the N-Gage had to be the N-Gage Arena, a service where N-Gage users could play games together on the go on their phone. The idea of that back in the early 2000s was essentially unheard of, and the fact that it worked even remotely well is a Viking miracle bestowed upon us by Odin himself. That feature would eventually find its way to future mobile gaming platforms and has been a wild success, especially since the release of the Nintendo Switch. Nokia proved that it was not only possible, but could be a key piece to how people game in the future. Sadly, sales-wise, the Nokia N-Gage was a disaster right from the release in late 2003. The goal was to lure gamers away from the Game Boy Advance, but at the time of the release, the N-Gage was being outsold by the Game Boy Advance 100 to 1. No amount of candy is going to get you into that white, unmarked van. <laughs> Eventually, the system did sell 3 million units, so it had a bit of a cult following, but never saw the widespread adoption they were looking for. But hey, there are emulators out there if you really want to experience the games. Not that we would condone that kind of thing. So in summation, while the Engage is mostly remembered as being a novelty in the gaming annals of history, we can't deny that it was a step forward for gaming on the go. Respect your elders, Switch. So was it two and a half inches in the annals of gaming history? <laughs> uh, actually, you're, you're being generous. It's 2.1 inches oh, in the sorry, annals of history. Sorry, I was history. rounding up. <laughs> Common mistake, common mm -hmm. mistake. Right. Thank you for attending today's Gaming History 101. Just a reminder, if you have ideas for a story or topic you'd like to hear, send us a message at agamersweekpodcast at gmail.com, and we might feature your suggestion. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you for listening to episode 111 of Gamers Week Podcast. And a big thank you to the Retro Game Club Podcast, Love Retro BTW, and A Gamer Looks at 40 Podcast for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to check out their links in the show notes. If you want to connect with Gamers Week, follow us on Twitter at Gamers Week PC. Watch us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Gamers Week Podcast. Email us at Gamers Week Podcast at gmail.com. Visit our merch store at gamers-week-podcast.com creator-spring.com or if you want to do it the easy way follow the link in the show notes and last but not least join us on patreon at patreon.com slash gamers week finally since you made it all the way to the end of this episode please leave us a rating and a review to let us know how we did we really do value your feedback and while you're there consider subscribing on itunes spotify or your podcast platform of choice ducks and red ox thank you so much for filling in the show tonight we had such a good time with you guys yeah. before we go tell all the listeners where they can find you Thanks for having us. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at Pixel Pond Productions. You can find me on Twitter and YouTube and Twitch at Ducks in Disguise. And you can find me, Radox, on Twitch, YouTube, uh, Twitter, Instagram, on TikTok at Radox PDX. Check out those other platforms for piano music, uh, video game shenanigans, and all that kind of good stuff. Can we find you on the N-Gage? Uh, no, you won't find us on the N-Gage, but I, mm -mm. I will accept Nokia's challenge, put some hot sauce on one, and try to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> will you stream that on YouTube? 
Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. I will be there. <laughs> Just make sure your dental coverage is up to date. Right, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Course. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Hey, nerd! Did you know that Super Mario 2 was really Doki Doki Panic? Welcome to Gamers Week Uncut. Welcome to Gamers Week Uncut. Welcome to Gamers Week Uncut, patrons with benefits. This is the unscripted patron-only bonus cast with less editing and more dirty jokes. We don't know where the conversation will go, but we're sure it will be weird. This fish just went right on my nipple. And I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> I Google Street Fighter 6, the first search result that comes up is people think they can see Ryu's dick in the Street Fighter 6 reveal. <laughs> Listen up here, kids. You're not going to want to get one of those VDSTDs things, right? Make your fall off. When you go, grab a pro. You'll be doing it for America. That was perfect. <laughs> If you want to hear weekly episodes of our patron-only bonus cast, join us at patreon.com slash gamersweek.